continue on in our Scripture reading. <clears throat> this is something that we started doing last week, and we'll be doing every week because 1 Timothy says that uh, we are to give attention to the public reading of the Scriptures. And we love to read the Bible, we love to teach the Bible, but we don't often just take the Scriptures and read them in the worship service and let the Word speak. So we're going to start doing that during the worship service. <clears throat> so we're going to work our way through First Peter, chapter by chapter each week. So if you would like to follow along with me, <clears throat> we'll read First Peter chapter 1 today. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, and that's typically what I teach from. I don't know what translation you uh, enjoy reading and studying, but I would encourage you to have an ESV for... Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, 
who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen. Well, we are going to now enter into our Lord's table, time of our service. And I actually wanted to take a verse from this text that we have read together here. And that would be verse 18. In verse 18, Peter says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Brothers and sisters, we have been ransomed. The Bible says that we were lost, that we were dead in our trespass and sin, that we were under the bondage of Satan, but Christ, our conquering King, came and death was swallowed up through the death of Christ. Amen? Jesus paid the penalty. He broke the bonds of sin and even defeated death. And so now we have been delivered from the penalty and the power of sin and one day even the very presence of sin. And Jesus told us that as often as we gather together, we are to take of the cup, we're to take of the bread, we are to take these things for ourselves, consume them in remembrance of Him. They represent something so very holy, something so very sacred, the broken body and the shed blood of our Savior. And Paul said that as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We can be so forgetful. I don't know about you, let me speak for myself. And God in His grace has given us something so special to come together and to do together so that we can regularly be reminded of that which matters the most our Savior, and the price that He paid for us. And it provokes us, it stirs us up to stay the course and to continue on. It reminds us from where we have been delivered. We've been taken out of the pit and our feet set upon the rock because of the price that our Savior paid for us. Amen? And so this is a time of celebration, as I say every time. It's a time for the body of Christ to come together in unity, as we have all received of the same sacrifice, as we are all filled with the same Spirit, as we all worship the one God in Trinity, we come together and we partake of the same supper, and we celebrate the friendship, the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the love, the family that we have one with another in Christ. And so praise God that we have this opportunity, amen? Praise God that we've been redeemed that we have been ransomed. Thank you, Jesus. The wrath of God has been satisfied in the finished work of the cross. And now we're invited to come. Come, feast, partake. And so let's do that today to the glory of God. And again, I would just remind us that this is something that is for the believer. This is something that if you have trusted Christ, you are invited to do. But if you have not trusted Christ, then this is not something that you have experienced personally. 
and we would encourage you just to remain seated. But we want you to be able to feast with us. We want you to be able to partake of this most gracious gift that has been given to the church. All that it requires of you is to believe. Believe in Jesus. Trust Him for salvation. Forsake your trust in yourself. Forsake your trust in anything else in this world. Abandon that and run to Christ. Flee into His arms. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Amen? And then you can join with us in the Lord's table. It's just that simple. You can do it right here. You can do it right now. There's nothing holding you back. Heavenly Father, thank You that already this morning You have been praised. Thank You that already You have received much glory in here as we sing to You and as we read Your Scripture together and as we share in the Lord's table and reflect upon the accomplishments of Christ. Now as we turn our attention to the teaching and the preaching of Your Word, You will continue to receive honor and glory. And there's no greater purpose in this life than that. Lord, that is the chief end of man, that we would exalt Christ, that we would glorify You, God, and enjoy You forever. And You are most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in You, and so we delight in Your Word, and we just want to dwell in Your presence, fix our hearts and our minds on things above. We want to learn of You, to be instructed by Your Word, challenged and encouraged and fed and built up, all for the glory of Your praise, Your grace. And so we ask, O oh God, that You would please speak to us through Your living Word. Holy Spirit, You would minister to our hearts and our minds through the inspired Scripture. It's sufficient, Lord. It's sufficient for all of our needs. And so we come to Your Word humbly, and we come, Lord, with great expectation. We come with great confidence, and we come with gladness and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, today we continue our study through the Gospel of John, chapter 15. And as I have said before, we're working our way through chapters 13 through 17 in particular because that is really one unit known as the Upper Room Discourse. And uh, this portion of Scripture is really wonderful because it has so many promises and the goal is to give hope to the believers. And I've talked about this many times before, but I feel the need to set this again, this context, in light of the text before us today. And so as we have looked through the Upper Room Discourse, we look at wonderful promises such as John 14, 1 through 3. It says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know Him, for He dwells with you and will abide in you. John 14, 23, Jesus answered them, If anyone loves Me, he will keep My word, and My Father will love him, and we will come to Him, and we will make our home with Him. Now Jesus, realizing that His hour had come, and He's about to go to the cross the very next day, 
and what faces the disciples this very night, and having already told them that He was going to be betrayed, He was going to be abandoned by all of them, um, He now turns to comfort His disciples, to try to prepare Him. And so He has given them all of these wonderful promises to do just that. But now, today, as we will see, the tone of the text changes dramatically. It goes from one of great comfort and encouragement and hope to solemn warning. He's going to warn them. He gives them wonderful promises, but He's also very clear with them about what they are to face. Jesus continues to lay out promises, make no mistake about that, but now it's a promise of hatred and opposition. We don't like those kinds of promises very much, do we? But it's a promise nonetheless, and He says that, you know, the world is going to hate them. The world hated Jesus, and now it is going to hate them. Now, enmity and opposition between God's opponents and God's people is a thoroughly biblical theme. It's a reoccurring theme from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We see it time and again. And it begins in Genesis 3.15, where after Adam and Eve took of the forbidden fruit, they were deceived, Eve was deceived, and then Adam uh, and Eve ate of the fruit and plunged the world into sin, essentially. God cursed Adam, cursed Eve, and He cursed the serpent. And then He says this in Genesis 3.15 to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. All the way in Genesis 3.15, God makes this promise, this prophecy about the coming of the Christ, the Messiah, who would crush the head of the serpent, Satan. This great enmity that would exist between these two and the ultimate victory that would be won through Jesus at the cross. And from this point here, we begin to see this ongoing regular pattern of conflict between God's people and God's enemies, essentially. And so Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary, Lessons from the Upper Room on this text, he says this regarding this very pattern. Cain seeks to destroy Abel. Potiphar's wife seeks to destroy Joseph. Pharaoh seeks to destroy Moses. Goliath seeks to destroy David. I would add to that, Haman sought to destroy the Jews, Mordecai. Babylon seeks to destroy Jerusalem. And the New Testament opens with this conflict. Herod seeks to destroy Christ. It climaxes with the dramatic conquest of the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. And listen to this. Here then is the fundamental principle of discipleship. The Christian who does not anticipate opposition does not yet understand the nature of the Christian life. Let me read that again. Here then is the fundamental principle of discipleship. The Christian who does not anticipate opposition does not yet understand the nature of the Christian life. Opposition is this theme that has occurred all throughout the Scriptures. And it is a promise that Jesus Himself gives to us, but He doesn't give it to us so that we would just cower in fear and live a life of dread. He wants us to be prepared, and He wants us to be able to stand against it and not succumb to it. And 
in the context, we have the Holy Spirit, our helper, who will help us to do just that. Amen? And so my, the title of this text really is the three points of the sermon. The way this text is laid out, I don't really have a succession of, of points. Uh, and so I'm just going to give them all to you at one time. And these are really the three main applications from this text. You ready? Expect opposition, resist worldliness, and get uncomfortable. Yeah, that's right. Come on, celebrate somebody. I'll say that again. Expect opposition, resist worldliness, and get uncomfortable. This is good for us, okay? This is good for us. We need to hear this stuff. I have been greatly convicted by it. I trust everybody in here will be. And this is necessary. Our Lord certainly felt that we needed to know these things. So let's, uh, let's dig into this and let's do some work and figure out how we can do a good job of obeying Jesus even in this. So if you would, let's look at these verses together. I'll read them to us. John chapter 15, going back to verse 17, he says, These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours." But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father." But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so let's go ahead and dive in. Expect opposition, resist worldliness, get uncomfortable. Verse 17. These things I command to you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Now previously... In chapter 15, we looked at how Jesus commanded the disciples to love one another. I wasn't here last week, but before that, we talked in depth about this very thing. Jesus said that the disciples were to love one another as he had loved them, and that is a command for us as well. Jesus said that if we did that, he would call us friends. He said, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. Remember that? He said, if you do whatever I tell you to do, ask you to do. And what was it that he was telling us to do? To love one another even as he has loved us. Jesus was concerned that the disciples would love one another intensely. Why? Because he knew that they would be hated intensely by the world. All of the hatred and the fury that was being poured out on Jesus all the time by the world there was now going to set its targets on the disciples because Jesus would ascend into heaven and his disciples would be on the earth as his ambassador 
preaching the gospel and the kingdom, and now all the fury that was intended for Jesus would be on them. And Jesus wanted them to know this. And I believe really that's why it ties in so wonderfully with this command to love one another, because in the world, outside of these walls, we will, we will get opposition. And so we need to encourage one another, we need to love one another, we need to serve one another and build one another up in the faith. We are a gift that God has given to each other to be able to support and encourage each other to keep moving forward in the face of certain opposition and hostility. Amen? And so Jesus says, look, you've got to love one another. You have got to stick together. You have got to pray for and encourage one another and build one another up because you will be hated by the world. Jesus said, really, this is nothing new to them. They saw it. They saw the hatred that Jesus so often endured. So this shouldn't be a surprise. This shouldn't come as a surprise to the disciples. This is something that they had witnessed time and again, time and again. Well, verse 19, Jesus says that if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And we're going to really camp right here. We'll, uh, we'll spend quite a bit of time just unpacking this, because I think this is really the thrust of it. But Jesus says that if you were of the world, you would be loved by the world. The world loves its own. Now, the world does have a real tolerance and acceptance for its own. And this tolerance looks like as long as you agree with everything that I believe to be true, then I can tolerate you. Now, tolerance used to mean, look, we can, we can all agree to disagree, but we can still work together. On some level, we can still, I'm not even going to use the word, coexist. I hate those bumper stickers. Sorry, but... Uh, Nonetheless, we could agree to disagree, but uh, now tolerance says you have to believe what I believe, and you have to affirm it, and now you have to celebrate it. You have to celebrate it. It's not enough to just say that you're okay to do what you want to do and believe what you want to believe, and I agree with you that it is true and right. We have to affirm and celebrate the ways of the world. And that's the way that this works. The world is never satisfied. Every time we capitulate and give in a little bit, the needle slides more and more, and the world demands more and more of us. But we're not of this world, all right? Jesus said it Himself, I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. So we might as well just be okay with the fact that this world is going to see us as intolerant, and this world is going to see us as haters because we are not of this world. We are of Christ. And the word church means literally called out ones. We have been called out of the world. And so we stand in opposition to the world. Now let me just say this. We shouldn't be hated by the world because we're just obnoxious. And I think there are a lot of Christians out there, even well-meaning, but they're probably hated more for that reason. <clears throat> but the reality is, we're going to be hated just for staying true to Christ, just for standing upon the principles of the Christian faith. 
their traditions and the, the moral precepts and the doctrine of the faith. We will be hated for that. Have you noticed how much the world hates Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? It's amazing to me. You know, Jesus, Christianity is not the only religion that believes it's the only way. It is not the only religion that is really has very strict traditional values and, and morals. But for some reason, Christianity is the one where our Lord and Savior's name is a curse word, where everywhere you go, everything you hear, media, on TV, everyone mocks Christ and mocks His people, and everybody has such a hostility and a hatred towards Jesus. Why is that, I wonder? And I have often thought that, to me, is one of the proofs that this is the truth. It's the true truth. Satan is attacking Christianity on a level that no other world religion would be attacked. Every other religion is even seen as cool or trendy almost, but not Christianity. Now, the world would like, or the, Christ, the church would like, I think I'm getting ahead of myself, to try to be cool and trendy and, and fit in with the world, but may it never be. Now, let me say this. I've kind of talked a lot about the world as though we're all clear on what I mean by the world. And some of us may certainly be, but I want to take a few moments just to talk about what I mean by the world and what I believe the Bible means when we talk about the world, because Jesus said that the world will hate us. So what is this, the world? Because the world, the Bible actually has various, there's various connotations. There is the world, the earth, right? Then there is the the people that make up the world, and then there's something different because the Bible says that God so loved the world, right? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, but then Jesus says, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Or 1 John says, do not love the world. So God so loves the world, but we're not to love the world, what's up with that? And so we need to get very clear about what we're talking about here. And so I have a number of quotes today, and I have a number of cross-references, so just hang with me because I think this is very good for us, and I also think that it will be very helpful. So regarding the world, what do I mean when I say the world? It is a system. It is a system of values, and it has as its ruler Satan. And so one, one uh, commentator, David Wells, he says this, "...the world is that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective. It displaces God and His truth from the world. It makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. I mean, how much do we see that in the world in which we live today? It gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. So the world takes what we know to be wrong, to be antichrist, to be contrary to God, it makes that seem good and right and normal. And they make us seem like the ones who are haters and who are strange and who are not just the world maybe used to think we were silly. Now the world thinks that we are poison. The world used to just kind of, okay, that's good for you and I'm glad that you have that and that works for you, but it ain't for me. But now it's not even that. It's like that's poisonous that you believe that. And you need to reject that. That's where we have come. David Platt says that the world then is not a place, but a system. 
It's a way of thinking and living that rejects God's rule. It is enthusiasm for the temporal and apathy for the eternal. We're all about here and now. We care nothing about there and then. It is living as if the world is all that there is. To love the world is to value what unbelievers value. To foster ungodly desires and attitudes. To indulge in what is delightful to those who refuse to delight in God. Let me read that last line again. It is to indulge in what is delightful to those who refuse to delight in God. This world rejects God and delights in everything but Him. Everything but Him. Now, that is the world. I think most of us probably understand this and probably that was nothing new to us. We realize that we were once caught up in that world system and that we have been delivered from it. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And Jesus tells us that Satan is the ruler of that world. In John 14, 30, he says, I will no longer speak much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has no claim on me. And so this is actually the context we're in right now. Jesus has said that the ruler is coming. Judas has been filled with Satan and has gone out to conspire against and betray Jesus, and he's coming back with those who would arrest Jesus and take him out for his, uh, those false trials. And we know that is a satanic, satanically inspired thing that's happening, and Jesus acknowledges it. The ruler of this world is coming. But you know what? He has nothing on me. Satan has nothing on Jesus, nothing with which he can accuse him. Nothing with which he could condemn him. Paul also refers to Satan, not as only the ruler of this world, but even the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan is the ruler of this corrupt, wicked world system, and he has even blinded the minds and the eyes of those who belong to this system to reject Christ, the very image of God. There is a satanic blindness that exists upon those who are in the world, according to the Bible. And so we are to expect that the world would reject Christ, would hate Christ, and would reject and hate those who call upon the name of Christ. Now, the Bible says a lot about our relationship to the world as Christians. If, if we understand that such is the case for the, the world around us in which we live, and we understand that the world is under the, under the sway of the wicked one, what then is our relationship to the world? Well, it's kind of a multifaceted one. But 1 John 2.15, which I have already referenced, says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we are not to go after the things of this world. We're not to march lockstep with what the world says is right and good. 
We're not to spend all of our days desiring power and prestige and status and possessions. We are not to live for the lust of the flesh. We are to fight against that. John says that if we love the things of the world, then we do not have the love of the Father. I mean, that is, that is sobering. The love of the Father is not in the one who loves the world. There is a total distinction that is to be made here, a total separation that must exist. And this is a fight, is it not? It is a fight because we are drawn away. We are enticed with the things of the world. James 4, uh, man, he gets even more intense about it. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He takes it to a whole other level. Now, don't misunderstand me here. We are to love the people of the world. We are to have a heart of compassion and brokenness for them. We should build relationships with people around us to the end that we can love them, love them with the love that we have been loved ultimately. It was the kindness of God that drew us to repentance. That's what the Bible says. And so we are to try to reach the people around us and love them kindly and serve them and be salt and to be light in a lost and dying world. So please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying, you know, you need to hate the world and isolate and separate and hate everybody that disagrees with you. That's not what I'm saying at all, obviously. I'm simply saying we have to realize that there is a world system that we live in that we are not a part of, and we must do everything in our power to fight against being drawn into it and conformed into its image. Amen? And that's exactly what Romans 12.2 tells us. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So there it is. Now this word conformed here, it's uh, I think in the passive tense, and what that means is, is that it's happening to us. If left unchecked, we are being conformed into the image of the world just by being here. It is that powerful. The pull, the force is that strong. The enticement is that strong that if we are not being proactive if we are not fighting the fight, if we aren't doing what we can to transform our minds, then we will be conformed into the image of the world. And dare I say, we have been conformed into the image of the world, maybe not even knowing it or realizing it. And that's something that, man, the Lord's been doing work with me recently and just really speaking to my heart about these matters. And I don't want to get ahead of myself. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But let me, uh, let me read to you another quote. David Platt, earlier I quoted about um, the world, how he defined the world. But now he speaks about worldliness. And man, he says this so well, I just don't think that I can improve upon this. So I just want to read it to us. Christians who mean to grow in godliness must be vigilant to guard against worldliness. For worldliness is a wily foe and a constant tempter. Few who profess Christ set out to be worldly, yet multitudes bear the world's imprint. 
Just as some jump off the dock into a cold lake, while others creep down the ladder so that their bodies can adjust. Some who profess faith plunge into the worldliness rapidly, while others become worldly through a long and slow immersion. Some make a close study of the world and its ways, and then they deliberately imitate what they observe. So you see this all across the board. You have some who confess Christ, and then somewhere along the line, they just, there's a sudden about face, and they just go into the world. And they look, sound, act like the world. They love the world and the things of the world, and you can't really distinguish them from the world. But then there are others. It's a very long and slow process of being worn down by the world and the pull of the flesh and the temptation of the enemy And like you said here, it's kind of like easing into very cold water. You ease in very slowly as to acclimate to it. And that's kind of how it is with worldliness. We become increasingly more worldly and don't even realize what has happened or that we're even in this place. Platt says this, We neglect to approach ungodly entertainment with due caution. And I think this is a very good application to make right here. He says, so that what at first shocks us soon amuses and delights us. We neglect Christian friendship and instead ally ourselves with people who have no affection for God and no desire for holiness. Through such neglect, we slowly lower ourselves into the waters of worldliness. Soon we find sin has begun to look attractive and holiness has begun to look futile. And so, this propensity towards wandering, our hearts wandering and loving the things of the world, you know, God is so holy, we'll just never, I mean, I get frustrated when I say that because I can't even begin to compute or communicate the depths to which God is holy. But God is holy in a way that we won't know on this side of heaven, and He hates sin, He hates evil, He hates wrongdoing. And we are so incredibly desensitized to sin. We, the kinds of things that we see and hear on a daily basis in the culture that we live, people 50 years ago would be traumatized by the images that we are inundated with on a daily basis, totally traumatized. But not only does it not bother us, it amuses us, it entertains us. Not only are we not offended by sin, we love sin. We love sin. We love the world. And this is all bad. This is all bad. And I am going somewhere with this, so just hang with me. Like I said, I wanted to camp on this point right here. I wanted to lay the foundation for us. Now, I've already talked about the battle that exists between the world and the people of God, right? Well, there's, there's another battle that takes place here that we need to be mindful of, and it's what the Bible calls the battle between the spirit and the flesh. The spirit and the flesh. Another commentator says that the flesh refers to the sinful inclinations of fallen man. This is not simply the physical body, but it includes the mind, the will, and emotions, which are all subject to to sin. Paul uses the term to refer to sinful propensities. 
that are intertwined with our physical weakness and pleasures. That's the flesh. We are in the flesh. Now, the Bible makes a distinction. There are those who are totally unregenerate. They, They have not believed in Christ. They are in the flesh. They are lost, right? Then there are those who have been born again who are in the Spirit, and they are no longer in the flesh in that sense. But as believers, we all have this battle with this propensity in us towards sinfulness. What is that? Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 7. He says, you know, there's the things that I want to do, the good and godly things, but there's something in me that fights that on every point. And so the battle is joined. And it's always this battle between honoring God or sowing to the flesh. What is that? That's the flesh. It's the power. It's the pull of this sinful tendency and propensity that is in us. And so the battle is joined. And Galatians 5.16 talks about this. It says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So there's the world, and there's God's people. There is the flesh, and there is the Spirit. There are the fruits of the Spirit, that which comes from being indwelled by the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But Galatians 5.19 says there are the works of the flesh. And the works of the flesh, Galatians says, is evidence. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These are the works of the flesh, and we all know well the works of the flesh. Galatians 6 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So we need to recognize, brothers, sisters, we are in a world system that is run by Satan that hates Christ and hates Christ's people, and we must expect opposition. We must expect opposition. And not only that, but we have this flesh. And, you know, we have an enemy of our soul, Satan, And I think for me, I might err on the side of not recognizing the spiritual battle for what it is because I personally believe that just the flesh in and of itself is such a formidable foe that I tend to contribute every or you know attribute everything to that. Man, the flesh, the flesh is such a powerful force that we have to battle. And you know what? The flesh loves the world, the flesh loves the world. And if we give into the flesh, if we succumb to the force and the power of the flesh, we will be drawn into the world. And we will love the things of the world. Yes or no? If you can't say amen, say oh man. You know? I mean, yes or no, right or wrong, we know. This is true. This is true. God help us. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for the gospel. Thank you that we've been ransomed and redeemed and purchased out of the world and bought with this precious price. 
the blood of a spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, given the Holy Spirit to help us fight this fight and to resist being conformed into the image of this world and being transformed in our minds and our hearts by God's inspired Word. Amen? So we do have hope. We can resist. We can fight this battle. We must fight this battle. Brothers and sisters, we must. Verse 20 says, remember, in John, John 15, verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. I don't think we're going to get beyond this verse right here. And so, I have a lot to say about this. You know, we should not be, we shouldn't expect to be treated better than our master. Jesus said that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Jesus, they're going to persecute us. We should not expect to be treated better than our master, but we do. We expect ease. We expect comfort. We expect the path of least resistance. We expect to serve our Lord from a place of comfort. We don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want to go outside of our comfort zone. We don't want to put ourselves at risk, do we? We love ease. We love security. We love painlessness. But we're Jesus' disciples, which means that we are followers, which means that we imitate Him, which means that we should expect similar treatment. In fact, the disciples in the book of Acts, man, they rejoiced when they suffered. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. Amazing. Let me say this. If we're not hated, the problem is probably that we're not enough like our Master. If we are not hated, if we are not experiencing resistance and opposition then we are probably not enough like our Master. Matthew 10.25 says that a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his Master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his Master. If they have called the Master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So, at times, Jesus' enemies would try to say that he was doing what he did in the power of Satan, that he was actually of Satan. And Jesus said, look, if they say that about the master of the house, if they say that about me, how much more are they going to say that about you? How much more are they going to say that about you? You know, I love this quote. I've heard it said that the problem with today's preachers is that nobody wants to kill them. I mean, preachers were soft. You know, throughout history, man, to be a preacher of the gospel almost meant certain death because they would take such a stand against wickedness and they would take such a stand for the truth and the light of the gospel. Many preachers, faithful preachers, have died throughout the generations. And the problem today is that we're a bunch of spineless, gutless evangelifish, you know? Just being real with you. we got to be like our Master. Jesus said that we should be worried if we are too well liked. Luke 6.26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. 
Why? Because the false prophets always prophesied good things, happy things, blessed things, but not the truth. God has always intended for His people to be different, to be separate, separate from the world, to be a peculiar and unique people. We're not to look like the world. We're not to try to be like the world to even save the world. The world wants a church, needs a church that looks totally different from the world. We must be diametrically opposed to the things of the world. We must be. And more than ever, the church tries to resemble the world. And I don't even know that it's something that we try to do. I just think that it is something that has happened that we have to fight against. You know, we need to own the fact that we are foolish. The world thinks that we are foolish and ignorant and stupid, and we need to just own that. Okay, you know, praise Christ. You know, may He be exalted. We don't need to try to. We're always behind the times. When we try to look cool, we always end up just looking ridiculous. It doesn't work anyway. We need to just own it. Amen? We need to own the fact that we are a peculiar people. We're different. We're not of this world. We're not what this world calls good and cool and right. And that's by God's design. God has chosen the foolish things to confound the wise. We need to start getting uncomfortable. We must get out of our comfort zone. There's this guy I work out with from time to time, and we'll be working out together, and it's get, you know, like high-intensity stuff, and he's like, come on, man, get uncomfortable. And I never heard anyone say that before, but I'm thinking, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm miserable. I'm beyond uncomfortable, okay? But that really stuck with me. We've got to get uncomfortable. And that was like one of the things that I feel like the Lord showed me was, I don't talk about worldliness as much because maybe I have gotten worldly. Maybe I have slipped into this mold. Maybe I do want to serve the Lord from a place of comfort. Maybe I don't have the kind of opposition I should have because I am too much like the world and because I don't want to be uncomfortable. But we got to get uncomfortable. We gotta, and that was the other thing, the basics of Christianity, Christianity 101. There are all these things we learn when we first come to Christ. There are all these awesome epic verses that just rock our world, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and Philippians 4, 13, and Romans 8, 29, and all, on and on, and eventually they lose their power in our lives. And these foundational truths began to, to lose their place, and one of them was get out of your comfort zone. That was one of the first things that I learned as a Christian. The Christian life is one of getting out of your comfort zone. Why? Because God wants to grow you. Amen? God wants to stretch us. God wants to take us beyond. And that requires getting out of our comfort zones. But we don't want discomfort. We don't want to get out of our comfort zones. But we must. We have to expect opposition, resist the world, and get uncomfortable. Brothers and sisters, get out of your comfort zone. If you have fallen asleep, wake up. Wake up. There are so many things that we just don't want to do, but we must. We must learn to live in a place of discomfort. That is where the growth happens. That's where the fruit happens. That's where we exalt and glorify Christ because we're doing something that cost us something. Amen? And so come to Wednesday night. You might just want to stay home after work. Get out of your comfort zone. Come to church. Be with the saints. You know, serve in the children's ministry. We have a real need there. Get out of your comfort zone. Do something for Jesus. 
Come, to us, come with us to the park. Get out of your comfort zone. Serve the Lord. Maybe you're not serving the Lord at all. Get in the game. What are you waiting on? How long have you been walking with Christ? Serve your king, amen? Serve your master. You know, giving to the kingdom, sowing to the kingdom financially, there are great needs always. And so get out of your comfort zone. Give to the Lord. Give to Him what He has given to you ultimately. There are so many ways in which we need to get out of our comfort zones. Christians, Christians, we must look like our Lord. We must not be shocked or surprised when we experience opposition. If we're not experiencing opposition, may we be warned by that. May we be concerned by that. And may we be compelled to get out of our comfort zone. I know someone who got out of their comfort zone. Jesus. I mean, who, who in the world got out of their comfort zone more than him? I mean, that's what Philippians 2 is about. The King of glory who existed from eternity past in perfect love and unity with the Father in heavenly glory. Didn't consider that something to, to grasp or to cling to. He set it aside. And He came to this earth and He took the form of a servant, a slave. He lived in perfect obedience and died the most horrific death imaginable, the death of the cross. The King of glory condescended down to our level to save us to save us. How can we then not be willing to get out of our comfort zones, to love the unlovely, to forgive those that we don't want to forgive, to serve those that maybe we don't even like or agree with? we got to get out of our comfort zone. We have to be like our master. Amen? By God's grace, we can and we will. Let's pray. We love you, Jesus. We love your word. We love being Christians, but help us, help us, because we love other things too. We love lesser things. We are drawn away, God. We're drawn away. Please, God, by your Spirit, refresh us. Light a new fire in our hearts. Give us a fresh desire for holiness. God, help us. We don't want to be conformed to this world. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We want to be the salt of the earth. We don't want to be salt that has lost its flavor. We don't want to light a light and hide it under a basket. We want to be a light on a hill that gives light to the world. Jesus, you are the light of the world. We love you, Lord, and we thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. May God go before you, fill you with His Spirit, lead you in the good way, give you all that you need this week according to His riches and grace and mercy, and give you the strength to resist the world and worldliness, to walk in the Spirit, to experience the fullness of His blessing and the fruitful Christian life. Amen. God bless you. I'll see you guys Wednesday.